This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings some solace to your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in, and as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens, and a temper that never tires, and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Carolyn Forche, author of the poetry collection In the Lateness of the World. The book is a book of journeys, of travels, of migrations, of refugees, and it's it and it is in a, a world in a dying state. We can still save it, or at least we can attempt to mitigate some of the damage, but this this book is written in that world. We'll be back with Carolyn Forche in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Carolyn Forche, poet, editor, translator, memoirist, and activist. She has been publishing poetry for more than 40 years. 
Her collections include Blue Hour, The Angel of History, The Country Between Us, Gathering the Tribes, and In the Lateness of the World. Her memoir, What You Have Heard is True, was a finalist for the 2019 National Book Award. She is a professor at Georgetown University. Her newest poetry collection, In the Lateness of the World, took her 17 years to write. It is a book of crossings, of migrations across oceans and borders, and travels between memory and imagination, and slips seamlessly in time between the past, the present, and the future. In the Lateness of the World asks us to contemplate our responsibility in the world, what to make of all we witness, and how to confront mortality. We began the discussion with Carolyn Forche sharing how she discovered poetry, and what about it set her on fire? I was a reader at a very young age, and I, I was writing little stories that in sort of emulating the reading that I was doing, thinking, oh, I can tell a story too. And I was fascinated with, with doing that. And then we, we had a blizzard. I was nine years old in Michigan. The, the schools were closed. And I'm the eldest of seven children, so my mother was home with all of us, and she would be driven mad if we were underfoot all day, so she gave us each an assignment, and mine was to write a poem, and she got her college textbook down from the shelf, and she she taught me iambic pentameter, and she showed me a number of of poems, mostly sonnets and things, and she asked me to write one. And I wrote a very boring poem about snow, uh, but I was hooked. And, you know, my mother said, well, write another one, you know. So I, I, I started writing poetry at that time, and I mostly worked in, I was a formal poet. I was writing in meters and rhyme and, you know, the traditional forms. Uh, I was also writing short stories and and then I had this sort of narr- narrative going on all the time in my mind. I would narrate, make up stories and tell them to myself internally, a kind of sub-vocal narration. And because I had to walk, you know, a mile to school and a mile back. And, you know, I lived in a rural area. And so there was a lot of time that I had. And I would pass the time by telling myself stories. And... So I think I was doing this pretty much all my life. I realize now I've been writing for almost um, 61 years. So <laughs> it's been quite a long time. I, I've never not written that I can remember. I don't remember life without writing. And did your grandmother live with you? From time to time. Um, she rotated among her children, uh, most of whom lived in Detroit or just outside of Detroit. She made an incredible impression on me when I was young. I, I spent a lot of time with her, both uh, gardening, growing vegetables and fruits, and also baking. She baked a lot of bread and donuts. And, you know, she taught me to bake when I was very young. And you know, and I was out in the fields with her picking strawberries and cucumbers and, uh, you know, when, when I was little. And she was, you know, she was born in, in uh, Bardiev, Slovakia. So she was, and she spoke English, but, you know, not particularly well. Uh, so she was European. She was very European. And for me, that was 
that was exotic and fascinated, fascinating. And I, I love to listen to her talk about Slovakia and her life there as a child. And I love to try to imagine it. And so my first serious poem as an adult was about her, it was uh, Burning the Tomato Worms, which is in my first book of poems, Gathering the Tribes. And it was a, it started out to be, um, well, it was a very long poem and it was trimmed back. I do a lot of revising. And uh, this, you know, this poem was a tribute to her and includes a lot of memories, flickerings of memory of Anna. Yeah, I was going to ask because Anna it appeared in many of these poems in the lateness of the world. And I was very intrigued by her. She came through a few and I saw in the poem, like for instance, in The Crossing, which might have been the first time I think that she appeared in this collection, you you are talking about you together and a little bit about her country of origin. We get some foreign words in there. And then this ending that made me feel sort of like a longing for the earth and the soil. I'm looking for it now. I rearranged this book so many times that I've lost track of where I put them finally. Um, Okay. She came on a ship when she was a very young girl. I think she was something like, you know, nine years old when she first crossed. And, um, And she talked about it to me. And later, much later, Uh, When her eldest daughter was close to 100 years old, the eldest daughter shared the memories she had of her mother's journey by ship. And they corresponded with what I remembered, but she even gave me more details uh, having to do with um, how they managed to get on the ships. If the ships were half empty or empty, Uh, didn't have enough cargo, then they would take people. So, you know, she, this crossing made a great impression on her. And, uh, and so she described it to me. And this poem um, reimagines her description. Um, But it is in the voice of myself in my childhood. Uh, When I talk about her waking me or not waking me, uh, she would sometimes wake me and take me out to the vegetable gardens with her, and sometimes she would let me sleep. So she stayed in my room with me, and and so, you know, I I would she slept beside me. I'm that's in the poem. Piskla is a a Slovak word for um, a chatterbox, you know, a little bird that sings all the time and doesn't be quiet. And she called me that. She called me Piskla or Piskata when I was a a kid. And so so that's why I used that word there. Uh, But what I wanted to do at the end, what I try to do, if the poem is working, if the poem emerges, if it comes to the page, it has to lift off in some way. It has to surprise me and it has to become something I wasn't expecting. And it has to sort of, the elements have to um, come into conversation with each other. And for me, that happens when 
the sowing of seeds in the earth merges with the idea of the ship plowing the sea and the wake behind it. So um, there were crows that would follow along behind her. I think this is where this image came from. Whenever she worked, there were a pair of half-tamed crows and she would, you know, she she loved them, but she would chase them away and swear at them in Slovak. And, um, but they would, you know, come behind her to peck at the, her strawberries. And so I think that's where the image of black wings came from in a deep memory, but they turned into the black wings of the water of the dark sea behind the ship. So once I got the, once that um, image of the crow wings and the, sh and the water in the wake merged for me, I knew that the poem had delivered something that uh, was new, at least for me. And so um, it, and it also has a kind of tone, almost a, a prayerful, prayer, prayerful or biblical tone at the end with the waters fell upon them. So, I mean, I don't really know how to talk about this poem so well, but um, it, it came when I was trying to remember her again on the page. And I remember how it was when I was with her as a child. And it was always really early in the morning when she would wake, uh, usually barely dawn. That's when she liked to go out and uh, watch the sunrise and, and work in the garden before it became hot in the summer. Do you see the world a lot? In images, I mean, when you're writing, do you, is it split for you? Do you see the relationship between things in some ways that are wordless that then you put into words? Um, yeah, I do have a, I do have a visual memory, and I think the images arise from the visual memory. But I don't translate the images into language. the The images have to find their language, and the language has to be resonant and precise and pared down, not effusive, you know, not flowery, not, <laughs> it, the elements cannot be modified needlessly. So I wait for the language to come, but I believe the language comes from visual memory most of the time. I think I'm actually a visual poet more than an oral poet. Um, meaning a poet of the ear, but I do, so I work on the music. I, w I work on the music, but I don't uh, have to work quite as hard for the images, if that makes sense. Would you say that there's something different between the visual and an image? Um, yes. Um, there's a wonderful book by Hugh Kenner called The Pound Era of Ezra Pound. Um, and it was, um, what, what I loved about that book was what it taught me about what imagery is as opposed to description, um, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to visual memory. The image is a vortex. It, inc it, it is suggestive of what is beyond itself. 
In other words, the images like the black winged waters, there's no such thing as winged waters, you know? So you get uh, a sort of the suggestion of meaning beyond itself. The image is, is sometimes tropic, so sometimes it's figural as well as literal. And, uh, and sometimes those, the tropic meaning and the literal meaning are not, uh, do not correspond. Um, and, and it was really a Kenner, Kenner really helped me to see, you know, what, what images could do and what they meant and how they, how they escaped their literality. You know, they escape their visual origin uh, somehow. Like there's a, I think it's Auden, the, the, leopard, the leopard autumn. And he's really talking about the, the, the mottled trees, you know, the trees when they're all, you know, sort of brown and red. And you know, so he saw that as a leopard's coat. Uh, so he fused the word leopard with the autumn without explanation. So it was, it's an immediate image and we can immediately connect it with that mottled quality of leaves that are uh, ready to go, ready to fall. Um, that's what I mean. It's a it's an interesting thing, and they don't all function that way. But but an image goes beyond description and beyond literal meaning. Like in your in your poem Tapestry, which is on page fifty two, right? It's it's a lot of images. You know, you start you start. <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of like almost like a list poem, and mm-hmm. it it to me, I wrote down these are my notes. Um, the surreal nature of horror and that um, sometimes there is no subject for the camera and and that it seems like a mixture of your visions. And if you want to read part of that, you can, or or talk about it a little. I mean, there's a lot of memories and it goes from kind of maybe some less intense thoughts to some really intense thoughts and, and that lift off at the end. Um, Well, uh, there are a number of poems in this book that are enumerative. You know, there, there are litanies, inventories, catalogs, listings, you know, and this, this in a way is one of them. It doesn't use the list as formally as some of the other poems, but, um, but this is one of those, as you have said, and it begins with um, a denial um, in a way, uh, it the, the first line is, there is no album for these, no white script on black paper. And that comes from the old photo albums where the black paper, we put the corners on the photographs and put them in the album and people would write in white ink um, because so it would show up who this was and what year or some little caption. Uh, and I was trying to, I, I think it, I think the first lines speak to the lack of such a photographic record. So these are things that there are no record of. And uh, when I say your hair has not yet fallen out nor grown back, this is a poem addressed to myself. The you is, I'm talking to myself. And, And so it's the time before I had cancer and and I imagine myself as the line is girl walking toward you out of childhood, not yet herself. And having not yet learned to recite before others, 
before I was a poet, before I had cancer, when I was still afraid to stand on the stage, you know, in a, even in a dark theater. And it makes a reference to would rather dig a hole in a field and cover herself with barnwood earth and hay and to be as quiet as plums turning. Um, when we were kids, uh, we used to make tree forts and some of us, myself included, liked to build ground forts, we called them. And the ground fort was a, a hole in the ground that was big enough for us to hide inside. It would take a long time to dig one and you wanted to conceal it so that no one would know where it was. So you'd haul some haul planks of wood and then you'd heap grasses on top of that and um, you know cuttings of hay and so on. We, we lived in a rural area and we would decorate these holes in the ground with you know and put our, our precious things there and we could hide there from anybody that we wanted to hide from and uh, so I make reference to those holes and you know, there's a darkness to why one would want to hide, uh, but I don't make that explicit. And as the poem moves, the hole becomes a grave dug by a child as a hiding place. And then, um, and then it it it's um, like a little stone skipping on a lake. It skips through parts of my remembered life. Um, one of the references is to, um, I was evacuated on the uh, USS Navy Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean Sea uh, from, I was evacuated from Beirut in February, 1984. Uh, I was there uh, doing some work for National Public Radio. My husband was working for Time Magazine. So we were, um, so years later in the ship's hold, and that is uh, a reference to that evacuation. It was the USS Manitowoc, which was an amphibious landing vessel. And then it leaps immediately to uh, a, a, another memory. I was on a, the a roof of the Pourbou, the Centre Pompidou in Paris. And, um, and actually a man who was standing right beside me on that roof jumped. And it was horrifying. Everyone in our vicinity was shocked. And there he was on the, you know, on those, you know, where the, in front of the Centre Pompidou, there's an expanse that's kind of clear where musicians come and pigeons and so on. And there he was on the ground. So, and then it jumps again to El Salvador and the, my last night with Monsignor Romero the Archbishop of San Salvador, and he is the saint soon to be murdered. It says, the poem is, nor in a convent kitchen on the last night, as a saint soon to be murdered, told you how to live your life. So then it returns to Lebanon and, and the blown up barracks where um, the Marines, 257 Marines were killed when a, a bomb was, um, the Marine barracks were bombed. It was a truck bomb. And um, and I, I used to walk around in that wreckage. I don't know why. I would just go there and 
walk walk there and try to understand it and try to feel something about what happened and you know you'd see all kinds of little things in the rubble like cigarette packages and little combs hair combs and things like that so it just moves like that and finally taking cover in a machina shop is from el salvador those images are amplified in the memoir um, what you have heard is true and and then finally i land in the cathedral of saint just um, in a little description of that cathedral in france and then my poet Bertolt Brecht, whom I love very much, who I, I quote him in the poem at the end, you came. Um, his poem is, you came to the city in a time of unrest when hunger reigned. You came to the people in a time of uprising and you rose with them. So the time passed away, which on earth was given you. Um, and then I give myself some advice you know, uh, gather the plums. That's an image too, gather in your sleep the ripened plums and then stay behind in the earth when your name is called. In other words, keep, stay, stay safe, stay in your hole, you know, wait until danger passes. It's something like that because these images in this poem, uh, a tapestry of images are all recollections. All of these images come from experience, experiences. This is something that's true of all of my poems. The details in my poems are, are from life. They're not imagined, they're remembered. So, uh, so this poem is a kind of, I didn't, you know, when I was writing it, I remember I did not know where this poem was going you know, as, as I was writing it, sometimes you do get a, a sort of intuition about where some where a poem is going. But this time, no, it was really resistant. It wanted to be what it wanted to be. One of the things you, you said, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly from five minutes ago, you said that you want to get some kind of lift off at the end. So how mm -hmm. do you how do you work towards that? And how do you know when you've gotten it? And what if you don't? The um, meditative mode, which I also work in, the meditative mode can move. It it begins somewhere, it moves elsewhere, it returns. It might go a second place, it returns. It builds momentum, The especially if it's stitchic. If the poem is stitchic, if it's one line following another, following another, without um, stanza breaks or verse paragraph breaks, um, you, you want, and you, and that poem is not, you know, 500 lines, it, you know, if it's a poem of, uh, of a certain length, like 20 to 60 lines or so, you, you want that, the rhythm of the poem to begin to build you. I mean, it, I want the, I want a momentum to begin to happen. And that momentum is what leads to the release and the release is what that lift off at the end is that, you know, sometimes it's epiphanics. I mean, sometimes it's uh, a realization at the end and sometimes it's a, a swerve away for in tonally and in every other way from what the poem was doing. Um, but 
something has to happen. If it doesn't happen, uh, the poem is dead. I don't publish it. I don't. It, it's a stillborn. <laughs> I have a lot of stillborns. You know, if I don't get that, and maybe that's why I'm so slow. I, I've published mostly one book every decade. This one has been 17 years since my last book. So it's almost two decades this time. But if the poems don't, if the poems don't do what I really know they can, uh, I, I can't, I can't put them in a book. So there are lots of orphan passages and poems, and boxes and boxes of it, you know, but when I get one, I know it, I, I can recognize it. In this poem, I was thinking about a tapestry and there's a way in this too, that form is almost in enacting in the thing itself where the way it's all braided together seems like a tapestry and I'm wondering if yeah. you if you think about that a lot when you write and if that's an important part of that I, f- I felt that I was weaving I don't know how the title came to me it came very suddenly I don't think I was conscious of it I'm often not conscious of those surprise gifts you know those things that you know when you're showing a poem to a group say a, a, a writing group or a workshop or something um, often people will point something out that is true of the poem, but the poet herself didn't realize it, didn't see it, didn't notice it. But there it is, you know, undeniably there, you know, like this weaving thing. Um, and I, so those are some of the mysterious elements. I believe, uh, I believe that that the various dimensions of consciousness, including the unconscious, they, they kind of line up like a series of lenses. This is an image that Jacques Maritain uh, wrote in uh, his creative intuition in art and poetry, that, that the lenses of the psyche align and uh, so that what is known in the depths of the mind can be can be focused and and lifted to the surface through writing, through through art, poetic intuition. I strongly believe in both meditative attention and poetic intuition. And you have to be in a kind of suspended state while you're writing. You can't direct the poem um, intentionally uh, too much because then you know, the associational magic of the subconscious won't have a, a realm to play in, you know. So I I try to, to be suspended, a kind of suspension of mind, especially the conscious mind, and, and let things flicker up from the depths. And so I'm always getting surprised. The, I think poems are more... Um, they have more resonant meanings than we can account for or explain even to ourselves. I mean, once I've written, I I know where some of these memories came from. I know where these images came from. I can trace their origins in remembered experience, but I'm not, while I'm doing it, trying to, to direct those memories in any particular way. So how do you go there and then leave there? So 
I kind of mean that on both levels. One is kind of when you're in this sort of subconscious state and calling in this meditative dreams and and images you're you're maybe waking up and getting out of bed and going there and then when you're done writing you have to leave so there's the kind of like a a passport maybe that needs to be stamped on both like mentally (laughs) like how do you do that that's interesting i i don't know i um uh margaret uh, um marilyn robinson who is a friend of mine um would often say writing is dreaming on paper. I don't want to make it too mysterious. You know, it's not, it's not hypnosis. It's not channeling. It's nothing like that. It's just a a kind of patience and waiting and then allowing yourself to write what comes without too much uh, direction. When I sit down to write, I'm, I'm usually not there yet. I'm not in that state. I maybe write a phrase and I see what happens. But as the writing starts to happen, I go into that state, that that dreaming on paper that Marilyn talks about. Um, and and so, you know, when I finish, often I, I don't, I don't get to write, you know, as long as I would like. I'm interrupted by other matters, you know, the whistling kettle or the, you know, the phone or, you know, something brings me out of it, you know, the, the real world and its demands intrudes, you know, so I, you know, I, I don't stay there, but I've always been a kind of daydreamer. I've always been very um, introspective and introverted, even though I don't seem introverted in public. Um, but I spend a lot of time alone. I have a lot of solitude and, uh, and I, and I was called a daydreamer as a child, both by the Catholic nuns who taught me and by everyone else who knew me, you know, that I drifted too much, that I was, when I was in El Salvador, Leonel, um, you know, in my memoir, he accuses me of daydreaming and of not paying attention. And th- this is something that I still have. I, I kind of can absent myself from what's going on, you know, for, for someone who, who is thought thought of as someone who writes about the world. Uh, I absent myself from the world a great deal. And then on the, on the more maybe realistic, tangible level, you write about a lot of horror, like human horror and things that um, you witnessed or think about or, or reenact on the page that are just awful. And so how do you also enter that space and and be able to leave? Um, Well, most of, I mean, everything that I write about is something that I've seen. Uh, And my life has been um, unusual in some ways uh, because my particular path has led me to different countries that were in turmoil and conflict. And some of that was um, through my husband, uh, who was a war photographer, and I went with him. Uh, to Lebanon, to South Africa. I mean, we, and we had met in El Salvador. So, you, you know, I, I had, uh, I'd had these experiences, and they stay with me very vividly. And, and they sometimes come to the page, not always. For instance, I haven't written anything about South Africa. And I was there when it was under apartheid. And it was a really horrific time in the middle 80s the middle of the 1980s and 
uh, and I haven't written a lot about Beirut either. There's some things about Beirut in the Angel of History, but not not very much. And and I so I I don't just go places and then write poems about them. You know, I have to process. It has to. I have to live with it sometimes for a very long time. Like in the Ghost of Heaven, uh, that memory. Uh, when I wrote this poem, that memory was um, 29 years old, uh, and I'd never written it. And I, I was haunted by that little girl and, and by how she was found and in what condition she was found. Um, you know, she she was found, in, you know, in a field dead, and uh, she had been uh, mutilated in a certain horrible way that's in the poem um but uh but she she stayed in in the she stayed in the back of my dreams for a long time and then after leonel gomez died who was my mentor and friend the person who brought me to el salvador i suddenly she was released onto the page i suddenly could write about her uh and i and his voice is also in the poem so um, I think his death had something to do with finally writing it. I, I'll have to say that, you know, probably my time in El Salvador, there was a great deal of trauma, and which I didn't acknowledge for many years. I thought I was fine, um, but I now realize that it had affected me very deeply. And, um, and so I have uh, slowly... Um, worked through it, partly by writing the memoir, partly by writing a handful of poems, and partly just by uh, living uh, long enough and coming to some kind of peace. I'm almost 70 years old, so, you know, I found a, a kind of equilibrium in my life. And and so I, I can't say that I go in and out of it. I would say that uh, that those dark experiences are available to me when I'm writing, but I don't push them onto the page and I don't, you know, I neither refuse them or invite them. And, and there's m many of them that I've never written. But this book is not really largely about those dark things. They're, they're fleeting mentions of them, but it's more a book about I'm hoping anyway, it's, it's elegiac, but it's also, it's also qu quietly re celebratory of, and I'm hoping that it's on some level spiritual and calming, but also filled with warnings and, and recognitions. You know, people don't want, pe people want to read something that gives them a dimension of of correspondence with their own with their own perceptions in other words they it's one of the problems we're having right now in our country is that we we're, we're being lied to all the time and we know it and um and it's destabilizing to be lied to and so when you read something on the page that is true that you recognize as truth. There's something not consoling about that, but it's it gives you strength. It gives you clarity. 
and awareness. I mean, what I I think a, a lot about hope now because people uh, talk about the need for hope, and um, there's a beautiful uh, sentences by Manlio Aragueta, who's a Salvadoran novelist. I I use these sentences as an epigraph to the memoir, and they are um, they 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 define hope as not the hope of fools, the other kind hope when everything is clear, awareness. So that clarity is something that I was hoping for in in this in this volume of poetry, awareness and clarity and precision. And uh, and a calmness, no hysteria, you know, a calmness about about the about looking at the world. Well, I you know I write down like images that that maybe repeat, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of ethereal um, ideas in here that have to do with ships, which you mentioned earlier from your grandmother, the sea, clouds, and light. And there are so many clouds and light. And I think about these things as very, you know, they're just like this filament of, of something that we can't touch, but they, they make our, our lives feel maybe more buoyant, like literally on the sea or looking at a cloud or, or light that you see in the distance or, or nearby. Thank you. I, I'm hoping so. There are a lot of birds, too, <laughs> different kinds of birds. Yeah. And I didn't notice that until I was putting it together. When I finally chose the poems and began to arrange them, I realized that even though they were written over a period of 17 years, they were in conversation with each other. You know, they were almost whispering to each other. And I saw those whispers through things like the images of the boats and the sea and uh and the birds and light uh there so there are those elements that i um i I tried to i I think i'll make a list someday of all the species of birds here and so when i saw this lovely crane lifting out of the water i had to put him on the cover i you know i had to this had to be it because um you know there are migrations there's the book is a book of journeys of travels of migrations of refugees and it's it and it is in a a world in a dying state we can still save it or at least we can attempt to mitigate some of the damage but this this book is written in that world that has been damaged severely and continues to be by uh, our actions upon it fossil fuel extraction and the burning of fossil fuels and and other things we've done so like the plastic um the some of the opening poems were written quite recently for me that means in the last three years (laughs) but they were written um in in indonesia i was in a i went to indonesia for a meeting uh that was held there about the crisis of the oceans and plastic pollution and it was um a number of of people were gathered from all over the world uh to address this problem and indonesia of course suffers greatly because all the plastic is washed to its islands and you know surrounds them and washes ashore so uh 
so that, that, you know, so it's not just the beautiful ocean. It's the ocean with its island of plastic debris and waste. Yeah, and it's... the plastic bags that become clouds. Yeah, in one of those poems, it's how 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 one begins to transfer those images. The because they discovered that you know the reason that the birds, the reason they find the plastic in the birds' bellies is that the it's mistaken for food. You know, it's it's they eat it because they think it's food. It, because it can sometimes resemble food. So, you know, it's not, that's, and so it gets inside them. And I just, so I didn't want a romantic images necessarily. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to have, uh, to describe the sea as it would have been described early in the 20th century or in the 19th century. I, I wanted the 21st century sea. And even though there are beautiful elements and the sea is sometimes a, a beautiful uh, image in the poem, it, it, there's also moments where that is not the case. Is there one particular poem that you would want to talk about? Toward the end, uh, there's two poems. That, one is toward the end and one is what comes. Um, what Comes was a poem that was written just as I was finishing chemotherapy. And, um, and it, is, it is addressed to myself. It's myself talking to myself. And it's a, a poem that is, the language is much different than the other poems. It is not a syntactically as uh, conventional. Um, it doesn't, um, the lines are lines. They are not their relation to the sentences that they might be part of is, is more, um, oblique than, than in the other poems that are narrative. And it begins with this beautiful, uh, quote by the poet René Chau, which is, I brought from despair a basket so small, my love, that it might have been woven of willow or so light, my love. No, it's small. I, I don't know. I've, I translated it a number of different ways. So, um, so it is what we carry away from despair. There's always something we carry away. We, there's something always beyond despair. Despair is not the end. And this poem was addressed to me to urge myself forward. It, it ends with the lines, you have yourself within you, yourself, you have her, and there is nothing that cannot be seen. Open then to the coming of what comes. So it's an encouragement. And the other one before it, toward the end, is a mysterious poem to me. It, it came very fast. And, um, and it's... Uh, also addressed to the self, although there's another here too that merges with the self sometimes. And this is the kind of 
we're in a fog, you know, in this archipelago of thought, which is not a real place, but islands of thought, right? In this archipelago of thought, a fog descends, horns of ships to unseen ships. So we we take this these islands of fog and we give them ships and then time passes. It passes overhead as if it were a bird, right? It says a year passing overhead, the cry of a year. And that, a bird's cry. So I'm fusing images of the of time with bir the bird. Uh, all of these elements of the book get fused in this poem. And someone is standing in the aftermath. I, I don't believe that we ever live after things. I believe that we live in their aftermath, in the aftermath. We live with things for the rest of our lives. We, li we live with our losses. We live with our joys. We don't get over anything. Um, all of that language about closure and, and coming to terms and getting past things and getting over things, those, those phrases all distort what actually happens in my view. So I, I imagine that in this state of being in the aftermath, you see someone and you recognize them, you think, but then suddenly they're gone again, like an apparition in the mind. And then there's a sound. And this is a phenomenon that I, I talked about this with Frank Bedart, um, the poet Frank Bedart. Uh, we, we began to talk about this weird phenomena where we would either in our sleep or in a dream hear sharp knocking at the door, usually one knock, two knocks, three knocks, no more than that. And we wake up having heard this knocking, thinking someone's at the door, but no one's there. And I asked Frank, he said, that happens to me too. I hear that knocking. And so I asked him what he thought it meant. And he said, death. So that's in the poem. Death it was, you said, but now nothing. The islands. So then I, the periods of one's life break up into these islands. Islands in space and time. Islands of experience. Because many of us experience our lives as somewhat disconnected. You know, the period when I lived here. The time I was over there the time I lived with this person, you know, and they seem like they don't, sometimes we feel like our life is not all of a piece. It is um, a series of random occurrences and strings like beads of string, uh, beads on a string, you know, of experience. And that this is what this poem is digging into, I think, which is all of the ghosts of our life and, and the fog of our life and and finally, when we go, there's the image of the well and going under the ice and emerging and coming out of the ice. And um, and it ends with, were it not for the weather of trance, of haze and murk, you could see everything at once, all the islands, every moment you have lived or place you have been without confusion or bafflement. And you would be one person. You would be one person again. So it's a kind of integration of the self, you know, uh, it, which is 
in, in a way beautiful and in a way impossible, but, um, but I'm imagining it as possible here that you can have all of this, that suddenly it all falls together, that suddenly you see it all, you know, maybe toward the end of your life or that it, every moment you've lived or place you have been becomes um, coherent as a whole, yeah. So that's why these two poems are at the end of the book. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Well, I, I thought uh, I would read Anna Akhmatova's instead of a preface to her poem Requiem, because this, this passage, uh, which is the preface to her long poem Requiem, um, I read this for the first time when I was quite a young poet, a young woman, and uh, and it made me realize something about poetry and what it could be in the world and what it meant. And she, her son was in prison in Leningrad, and so this is a poem uh, that she writes about uh, when she, you know, when she would go to the prison to try to take him some food. In the terrible years of the Esof terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day, somebody in the crowd identified me. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold, who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now, she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper. Everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Leningrad, 1st of April, 1957. Do you want to say anything else about that? The faith that the woman had, she realized that she was standing with Anna Akhmatova, who was then a great Russian poet. And she wanted to know that the woman was asking the poet Akhmatova, can you bring this experience we're all having to the page? Can you, is there a way to put this into words? And the fact that Anna said yes was enough for this woman to have a moment of relief, a moment of respite. What I want to say now is that we're all living all over the world in a moment of darkness. We're living through the, the pandemic of uh, coronavirus 19, and it has unsettled all of us all humans, all of us are vulnerable to it. And it hasn't yet affected us as it will in the next months. We're more or less as bad as it is, we're at the beginning. And, uh, and, and I would feel as this woman felt that someday someone would be able to find the language for this, find the language for what we're feeling as a species. 
Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, well, the, the difficult one was that what comes poem. It didn't change. A, I did change it a little, but it was more trusting the poem. The difficulty was it's not conventional and I had to trust it. And that was hard for me. I didn't, it wasn't behaving itself. <laughs> it wasn't, um, it wasn't obeying conventional syntactical rules. And it wasn't as grounded in, in experience. It was much more abstract than I am used to being on the page. And I think when you're outside of what you usually do, you know, it can get, you can, you can begin to doubt yourself and doubt the work. I mean, I've had that happen to me before. The entire book, The Angel of History, was an experience of that doubt. But, uh, but this, this poem, which isn't long, um, was, was such a moment for me. And I finally had to just let it, you know, exist, let the poem be. And I discovered that it wasn't so difficult for other people. It was only me, you know, that, that other many other people have said this is the poem they like the most. You know, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. But so I could I could read the few lines if you like. Please. To speak is not yet to have spoken. The not yet of a white realm of nothing left, neither for itself nor another, a no longer already there along with the arrival of what has been, light and the reverse of light, terror as walking blind along the breaking sea, body in whom I lived, the not yet of death darkening what it briefly illuminates, an unknown place as between languages, back and forth, breath to breath, as a calm in the surround rises, fireflies in lindens, an ache of pine. You have yourself within you, yourself, you have her, and there is nothing that cannot be seen. Open then to the coming of what comes. So that's, um, that was for me a tricky poem, not because it was difficult to write, but it was difficult to let happen. And it was difficult to not to leave alone. And it was difficult to let exist in my book. Because normally, when I have severe um, trickiness, I, I put the poem in a box, you know, <laughs> it doesn't get to see the light of day, but this one needed to and I'm glad that it has. And, but it is a strange little thing for me. Where do you write? Um, everywhere, because I'm, I have no, up until this um, confinement to my house, I, I really am traveling a lot and moving around a lot. So my favorite place to write is on a train, <laughs> actually. But, uh, but I have a little notebook. I keep little notebooks with me, and I write all the time. I write in the standing in line for whatever, I'm, you know, standing in line for. I, I write 
sometimes stop the car and write lines. I, I write in bed. I write all the time, everywhere. There's no favorite place. I don't sit, usually I don't sit at a desk. Actually, that's rather odd, isn't it? But I don't sit at a desk. That sounds liberating, actually. <laughs> uh, what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I I go to the kitchen. I cook. I love to cook. And I, uh, when I need to relax, I relax by cooking. And food is a great passion of mine and always has been. So I think that goes back to Anna, um, you know, circling back to the beginning of our conversation you know, when she, and my mother, uh, you know, I learned to cook as a child and I was, so I've always done it. And it's very meditative for me. I know that that's hard for some people to imagine because for many people it's a task, you know, but for me, it's a real pleasure. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, sometimes this is a mistake, but, but usually it's very helpful. Uh, I, I show I show my work to Harry, my husband. He's a very very good reader, and he he usually will point up something that I need to look at. Uh, he's you know he's uh, he's demanding, but uh, and and really uh, pushes me, which is good. So that's who I show it to. I don't, I've never had a whole lot of people that I showed my work to. I, I've never done that too much, but with him, I do. I test it on him and he tells me what he thinks. How have you dealt with rejection? I find the only way to deal with rejection of any kind is not to give it too much attention, <laughs> not, not to dwell there, you know, not to, not to give it too much energy. Um, to try to deflect it and move and not to worry. Um, and, and also I would say that for, for young poets, if they get a rejection letter for poems or they don't win a contest for a manuscript, it, it often, most often has very little to do with their work. It has to do with um, whether the, magazine had already accepted too many poems or whether the mood of the editor re reading the poem at the time or the fact that maybe they published too many poems on this subject or so it there's a lot of factors that go into this and you know for example it, with contests it really is um it, it's really that a one particular judge on a particular day you know, went through the last dozen or so manuscripts that were considered finalists and and finally made a choice that it is in some ways slightly arbitrary, you know. So it's it's best not to take it too personally. And what is your favorite word? Endurance right now. <laughs> endurance. Uh, we have to endure, endure what is happening to us. And, and that means to go through. I also like the word experience because it comes from experience, which is uh, the risky crossing. Experience is a risky crossing. Experience is always a bridge. So endurance and experience 
I think right now are my words. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Carolyn Forche, author of In the Lateness of the World. If you like today's show, check out my interview with poet Erica Meitner, whose book Holy Moly Carry Me has a large focus on race, guns, and rural America. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 25 minutes collectively of interviews with Carolyn Forche, Anna Solomon, and Anne Napolitano, and writing tips from some of these same authors. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sue Monk Kidd, Vanessa Hua, Anne Enright, Mary South, Tara Shea Nesbitt, and Lori Gottlieb. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.